0: I'm Taylor. And welcome to your Square Mile of Murder December bonus episode extravaganza. Yay! Uh, if you've listened to last month's bonus episode on the Bear Brook murders and forensic genealogy, you might remember that we said we would do a full episode on Terry Rasmussen, also known as the Chameleon Killer, because I kind of had to rush over some of his mm. crimes and therefore some of his victims in last month's episode. And we don't like reducing victims to footnotes in their own murders, because that's not nice. No. And we wanted to make sure that we could, like, honour them all properly in their own episode. So, let's get into the story. Hopefully there's not too much repetition. Yeah. But obviously, we kind of have to put it in context and I make think make reference and stuff, so... I think it like, yeah,
1: basically, we're going to touch on a, a couple of the things that we talked about, but it's it's more like elaborating on what you've already heard, yeah which is also to say, if you haven't listened to that episode, you should probably listen to that first, <laughs> definitely <laughs> Terry Peter Rasmussen was born on december twenty third nineteen forty three in Denver, Colorado. Uh, But he spent most of his childhood in Arizona, uh, and he attended high school in Phoenix. We don't really know much else about his childhood or adolescence, except that he dropped out of school in his sophomore year, in 1960, and a year later, at the age of 18, he enlisted in the U.S. Navy. He served for six years, on bases in the western U.S. and in Japan, until he was discharged in
0: 1967. At question for all me and all our non-american listeners sophomore year what age is is that sort of 15 16 yes generally it's 15 16 yeah so
1: second year of high school
0: yeah you've got two years after that you've got junior and then Mm -hmm. senior yeah freshman sophomore junior senior
1: rasmussen was a man of many aliases and did his best to avoid authorities in any form for most of his adult life And so there are some aspects of his life and crimes that we can't be 100% sure about. But we've done our best to tell this story in chronological order, Um, but it will jump around a little bit because that's just kind of the nature of trying to tell a story that's this complex and confusing.
0: Two years after his discharge from the US Navy, Rasmussen married his first wife and the couple had four children. Since Rasmussen was identified as a serial killer, some of his children have spoken out in the media about their father, some have spoken openly, some have chosen to protect their identity, others haven't said anything at all, so we won't be naming any of them out of respect for that, and I think some of them have changed their names as well, so... Yeah. Yeah. We will just be, you know, referring to them as son and or, or daughters. Sons and daughters, so, you know. Yeah. Uh, the family moved between Phoenix, Arizona and Redwood City in California. They also spent some time in Hawaii, but the marriage was an unhappy one and Rasmussen was reportedly an abusive father and husband. In 1975, he was arrested for aggravated assault and his wife left him taking the children with her. The divorce wasn't finalized until 1978, but the last time the children saw their father was the winter of Either 1975 or 1976, uh, when he vis- visited them at the home of them and their mother uh, in Phoenix, and he had a woman with him who has never been identified. We will move on to her in a bit. Yeah.
1: One of Rasmussen's daughters told the Bear Brook podcast that for many years, she thought that her mother had murdered her abusive father, claiming that her mother had some mental health issues, as well as a violent streak and alcohol abuse problems. And it wouldn't be until 40 years later that the Rasmussen children would discover the truth about their father's life, or at least some of the truth. At some point, either during his time in the Navy or following his discharge, Rasmussen had trained as an electrician, and after the breakdown of his marriage in Phoenix, he traveled around the U.S. working as an electrician for uh, various different gas and oil companies under various different names. Uh, At some point in the late 1970s, he settled in Manchester, New Hampshire, just a short drive away from uh, the Bear Bra... No... The Bear Brook State Park, and he at this time was going by the name of Bob Evans.
0: That Bear Break State Park. <laughs> in 1980, a certified letter was delivered to Rasmussen under the name of Bob Evans in Manchester, New Hampshire, and it was signed for by a woman named Elizabeth Evans. And around this time, Rasmussen was arrested on two separate occasions uh, for what are described as minor charges. <laughs> on the paperwork for both of these arrests, Elizabeth Evans is listed as the wife of Bob Evans. Unfortunately, that is all we know about Elizabeth Evans. There is no other paper trail for her anywhere. Oh. As far as we can find, there are no photographs of her from her time in Manchester nor are there any missing persons reports or a death certificate for her. We're not even sure if there is a birth certificate for her given that Evans is not exactly a rare surname. And also assuming that Evans was her married name, or at least that she was going by his name, even if it wasn't a legal marriage. Yeah, yeah. Whoever she was, Sadly, she was likely an early victim of Terry Rasmussen. However, we can speculate that she may have been either from New Hampshire or New England or from California.
1: Yes, so the reason we can sort of puzzle that out is because... Two years prior to Elizabeth Evans being listed as Bob Evans's wife in Manchester, New Hampshire, uh, Rasmussen was dating a woman named Marlies Elizabeth Honeychurch, uh, who was a young mother from La Puente, California. Marlies was the adult victim found in the first barrel in Bear Brook State Park in 1985, along with her uh, eldest daughter Marie Elizabeth Vaughn, her youngest daughter. Uh, Sarah Lynn McWaters was found in the second barrel in 2000, along with a third child victim who still remains unknown and unidentified. Marlise was last seen on Thanksgiving 1978 when she got into an argument with her family over her new boyfriend. Uh, none of the family members could remember his name, but we now know him to be Terry Rasmussen. Marlise was 24 at the time, Uh, Marie was 7, and Sarah was just uh, 1-year-old. Following the fallout with her family, Marlise and her children traveled to New Hampshire with Rasmussen, where he would tragically murder them and dispose of them in Bear Brook State Park. Based on the estimated ages of the victims when they were killed and Rasmussen's known movements in the late 70s and early 80s, it's suspected that Marlies and the three children were murdered between 1978 and 1981.
0: We don't know a lot about Marlise's life. She was born in 1954 in California and married her first husband in 1971 at the age of just 17. Same year, she gave birth to her first daughter, Mary Elizabeth Vaughn, but the marriage didn't last, and the couple divorced in 1974. That year, she remarried again. Three years later, in 1977, Malice gave birth to her second daughter, Sarah Lynn McWatters. The couple separated sometime either in 1977 or 1978, and by Thanksgiving of 1978, Malice was dating Terry Rasmussen, presumably under the name Bob Evans. Malice had been in custody battles for both of her children, and both of them had lived with their fathers at various points. Which is why it's so confusing that nobody ever reported her missing after that Thanksgiving. Yeah. I mean, even if she'd fallen out with her family and they thought she was just off, you know, taking some time for herself or, you know, in a mood and just not speaking to them. Them two kids had fathers who had been in court battles for custody of them but oh, they disappeared off the face of the earth and nobody bothered? It is weird. I still don't quite get that. That's the, that's one thing that really I don't get about
1: this case. Yeah, It's possible that Marlies was the woman known as Elizabeth Evans in Manchester. Um, Elizabeth was her middle name, and if she didn't want her family to find her following their fight, she may have started going by her middle name and either uh, may have married... Or taken Bob Evans's name. But also, we haven't really read that theory anywhere else. We could have just made it up and we could be wrong. So,
0: yeah, that's the thing. I like when we did the episode last month, I didn't think of that. But then when I was reading through this, and I was thinking, who, you know, who was Elizabeth Evans? And I thought her middle name was Elizabeth. Yeah. So, it's possible. If she's listed as his wife, even if it's just like, common law married him. it's not Mm -hmm. an actual there's not been no like a binding legal ceremony she could have just started going by his name yeah calling herself his wife um which was obviously much easier to do back in the 70s so i was thinking i can't be the first person to think of this no no which means it must have been thought of and dismissed yes well or or we could be geniuses. I was and saying, we, just don't know. we
1: could just be really really smart. <laughs> Definitely debatable. Um. <laughs> <laughs> That's just not good. <laughs> uh. So there's there's that possibility. Or um, if Rasmussen murdered Marlise and the children before 1980, uh, Elizabeth Evans would likely have been someone. Uh, whom he met and began a relationship with in Manchester, and she was possibly from the the nearby area. Based on the confirmed timeline of Rasmussen's movements, it is unlikely that Elizabeth Evans was the woman whom the Rasmussen children remember visiting them with their father in 1975
0: or 76. I believe, and I think a lot of people who have looked into and worked on this case also believe that Whoever the unknown woman in Phoenix was, she was the mother of the unidentified child who was found in the second barrel, and that she is another victim of Terry Rasmussen. But without any kind of positive identification, we can't say any more about her. Yeah. Um, what we do know is that Barbara Ray Venter, who really pioneered forensic genealogy, she is working on the third child's uh, family tree using forensic genealogy, I believe. Mm-hmm. That was sort of the last update in the Bearbrook story about a year ago. So we might at some point be able to, you know, if we can't identify her, at least identify her family, mm-hmm. uh, even if we don't know her name. Yeah. At some point in 1981, Rasmussen, who we believe was still going by the name of Bob Evans, met and began a relationship with Denise Bowden. And one just really sad thing about this story is we don't know much about his victims. There's just so little information on them, and it's almost like, you know, like the. It's a horrible classification, but like Skid Row killers. Mm hmm. Who target the like, the vulnerable sort of people who are homeless, people with addiction issues, mm-hmm. sex workers, the less dead. Yeah. Essentially. And I hate those terms. People are the sort of fringes of society. Yeah. And he knew he knew how to get away with with this because he knew how to isolate his victims. Yeah. What we do know about Denise is that she was 23 when she disappeared. Like Malice, she had fallen out with her family during a Thanksgiving dinner. This was in Gothstown, which is about 10 miles away from Manchester in New Hampshire. And she was never seen again. A few days after Thanksgiving, Denise's parents went to the house in Manchester where Denise lived with her new boyfriend, Robert Evans, or Bob Evans and her six-month-old daughter, Dawn.
1: Uh, Denise and Rasmussen slash Robert Evans had been having money problems before they disappeared, and so her family assumed that they had just gone on the run to escape those money problems. Now, because of this, they never reported Denise and Dawn missing. Uh, And we now know... That Dawn is the young girl named Lisa, who was abandoned by Rasmussen at an RV park in Scottswood, California in 1986. And uh, we covered her story in uh, great depth and detail last month in the bonus episode. So if you don't remember Dawn slash Lisa's story, you should go back and listen to that episode um, and get a get a refresher there uh and if you haven't listened to it again go listen to that because it'll it'll give you a lot more context for some of
0: the things that we're going to mention here <laughs> yeah Th- this episode makes a lot more sense if you listened to last month Yes. Yeah. it's a, it's a pair as well. it comes a pair um yeah
1: so uh because we're not really going to get into lisa slash Dawn today uh just because we've already covered it and we want to focus on more of the victims that uh, whom we didn't have time to cover in depth in last month's episode. Now, it's theorized that Rasmussen killed Denise sometime between when the couple disappeared from Manchester in November 1981 and when Rasmussen resurfaced under the name Gordon Jensen in California in January 1986. And Denise actually wasn't reported missing until 2016, 35 years after she was last seen alive and nobody has any idea where she is or what um, happened to her. She would now be uh, 62 years old.
0: That's the same age as my mom.
1: Yeah. Well, it's funny, uh, looking back at the Marlies Honey Church. So she was born in 1954. That's two years younger than my mom. But she... Got married to her first hum- husband in 1971. That's the same year that my mother got married for the first time. So it's like a lot of
0: <laughs> wow. That's crazy. Yeah.
1: And they're from I, California, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, La Puente. Yeah. So that is is crazy. And of course, the only the only reason she's being reported missing is because they finally identified Lisa's mother. Yeah. They identified her as Lisa's mother. Yeah. And that's when they realized that she hadn't been seen. Yeah, which is five years. Like wild to think about. When Dawn, slash Lisa, was taken into the care of local authorities in California in the summer of 1986, she told law enforcement officers that she had had other siblings, but they had died whilst they were camping after eating field mushrooms. But because Dawn was just six months old when she left Manchester and five years old when she was abandoned in California, she doesn't have any real idea of who those siblings were, wh- how old they were, when and where they died, or even their names, mm-hmm. anything like that. Yeah. Now, we know that by, this, by 1981, they couldn't have been Malise's children. Because you could argue that it could be like. Because I'm going to go ahead and say that these were incredibly abusive relationships. Mm -hmm. So it could even. You know, one explanation would have been he had essentially two wives and they all lived together and the kids were brought up together. But by 81, we know that Melise and her children and the unidentified child were dead. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Does this mean that Rasmussen had children with Denise? Mm -hmm. Or did he kill Denise soon after she disappeared and then met another woman who had children and killed her and her children? We have no idea.
1: Yeah, well, and also, like, if it was something like that where he killed Denise Bowden soon after they had last been seen... And Don was so young, like just six months old or nine months old or like still a baby, basically. And he sort of took up with another woman. He could have been with another woman from for a a while. Yeah. And then have killed her and still had kids around before Don slash Lisa would have any memory of it at all. Because she was so young, so it's so...
0: So she could have been told that her mother had died, but these were her actual siblings. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So we have no idea of their identities, but authorities are confident that her claims of other siblings who ate poisonous mushrooms is proof that there are other victims of Rasmussen who are out there, who are still unidentified. Yeah. Who people might not even be looking for
1: yeah unfortunately
0: yeah uh, what authorities do know is that rasmussen had gone by the name of curtis mayo kimball in 1985 when he was arrested for a dui in cyprus in southern california and that at some point he had stayed in an rv park in texas however By the time authorities discovered where he'd been staying in Texas, the park had been sold and the new owners had destroyed all of the old paperwork. Helpful.
1: So, interestingly, there was another woman named Denise who disappeared from the Manchester area in the early 1980s who may have been linked to Rasmussen as well. Denise Ann Deneau was 25 years old when she was last seen leaving a club in downtown Manchester in June 1980, and she said that she was going on to a party after being at the club. Denise was divorced with two young sons, and her friends and family said it was completely out of character for her to just disappear, leaving her sons behind the way that she did. Um... Uh, Denise Deneau lived on Hayward Street in Manchester, just down the street from Rasmussen. Just six weeks before she disappeared, 14-year-old Lorreen Ann Ron also disappeared. She lived just two blocks away from Hayward Street on Merrimack Street. Despite the 11-year age gap, it was said that Lorreen and Denise resembled each other quite closely, which fueled speculation that they had been taken by the same kidnapper Slash killer. Uh, Rasmussen has been linked with the disappearances of both women, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence other than he was a serial killer who lived and was active in the area
0: at the time. We've talked about this before. I think mainly in the Angus Sinclair episode. In hindsight, we often try and solve cold cases when we know there was like a murderer or serial killer operating in the same area at the same time. We're like, oh, it must have been them. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, there's no evidence pointing to them as the perpetrator of these unsolved or cold cases. But we, as society, we don't like the idea that there are serial killers just wandering around living their best lives. So we ascribe other crimes from the same time and place to them despite a lack of evidence or even evidence pointing to the country. Yeah. And as I said, Angus Sinclair I think is the main example of that when he's been linked to Bible John. Yes, yeah, that's that's I was trying to remember what the link there was. These two women, uh Denise Deneau and Lorreen Ran, they could very easily be victims of Rasmussen's And also, I guess it's important
1: to note that at the time, they weren't, the police weren't sitting there being like, oh, yeah, we, like, we know this guy, Rasmussen. He lives right down the road. He's a bad guy. They had no idea who he was. Like, so this is all putting the pieces together after the fact. And so, again, it's, uh, pretty much all speculative.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Um if not sort of educated guessing. With all that in mind, um we don't really have a good idea of what Rasmussen got up to between leaving Manchester and then resurfacing in California as Gordon Jensen in 1986 except uh, for the DUI in 1985. In late 1986, authorities found that Gordon Jensen and Curtis Kimball were the same person. Uh, and they still had no idea that neither of these um, aliases were his real identities. They just thought one of them must have been the one.
0: Yeah, I think they eventually settled, settled on Kimball because that was the oldest yeah. re- like alias that had gone yeah. by. I'm just thinking he had to have done something while he was living under the name of Kimball. Otherwise he wouldn't have changed it to, to Jensen just because of a DUI. Yeah. I don't think you would
1: think. Um, so after he abandoned Don at the RV park, he moved around the Western U S specifically California, Idaho, and Oregon in the autumn of 1988, he was arrested in San Luis Obispo, driving a car stolen from a home in Preston, Idaho, he was arrested under the name Gerald Mockerman. And uh, just like every other time he was arrested, he was fingerprinted. And the prints showed that Gerald Mockerman was Gordon Jensen slash Curtis Kimball. Um, now, like we said, authorities believed his real name was Curtis Kimball. So when he was finally charged with abandoning Lisa at the RV park, he was imprisoned under the name Curtis Kimball. Uh, Kimball was sentenced to three years for child abandonment in March 1989, but was released on parole just uh, 19 months later in October 1990, and he skipped town pretty much right after that, right after he was released, and then remained on the run for 12 years.
0: Again, we have no idea of Rasmussen's movements following his release from prison in 1990. It is possible. That he carried on much in the same vein as he always had done using and abusing people then skipping town and assuming a new identity as soon as anything went wrong what we do know is that he resurfaced in california once again in 1999 this time in the bay area going by the name of larry vanner he's dating a woman named unsunjun Unsoon was in her mid-40s, and her family had em- emigrated to the US from Korea when she was young. She was a chemist and worked for a biotech company in Richmond, California, which is just outside of San Francisco. Yeah, it's in like Silicon, Silicon Valley area. Her cousin Elaine is the main source of information we have on Unsoon, as she contributes heavily to the episode of the Bearbrook podcast, which is about Unsoon. And she is probably the only one of Rasmussen's victims that we really know a lot about. Yeah. Um, possibly because it's so recent, but possibly just because she was one she was someone who was missed.
1: Yeah. I think that's part of it. Like her family and friends were quite concerned when all this started yeah. happening, so um but we'll we'll get into that more. Yeah. Uh So, Unson's family first met Larry Vanner at a Y2K party on New Year's Eve, 1999. Who remembers that whole shenanigans?
0: I do. (laughs) I sort of vaguely remember it, but I also remember reading a few years ago that everyone was like, ah, remember how it was like the Y2K panic and it turned out to be nothing and it was so stupid. And and then there was like someone who worked in the... IT computing industry Mm -hmm. or electronical engineering, whatever that sort of not just computers but the wider sort of industry. It said, you know, they'd worked in the industry in the late nineties and they said the reason nothing happened is because it was years of work on the part of those in that industry to make sure (laughs) everything worked beyond, you know, eleven fifty nine on december 31st 1999 wasn't wasn't that it was a whole hoax and a big panic over nothing it was a hell of a lot of work that nobody saw preparation yeah we look back at it as this sort of like crazy thing but also
1: it was a crazy thing it was it was very real yeah so unson's family met larry vanner at a y2k party that was hosted by her cousin elaine at her home in monterey california beautiful place
0: um good aquarium there's a really cool racetrack there that i want to go for, <laughs> watch bikes racing that's the only reason i know where monterey is it's called laguna seca and it's got like the most famous series of corners oh see there in you bike go. racing it's called the Cox go see that and then go meet
1: some penguins no matter how excited insun was about her new boyfriend her family just like could not stand him at all uh the two of them arrived at elaine's house in a filthy white van. And Elaine says that when he stepped out of the van, a chill ran down her spine. And that's never a good thing. (laughs) So she was further disturbed by Vanner slash Rasmussen's general lack of hygiene, including his dirty fingernails and scruffy clothes. Uh, Elaine described his only redeeming feature as being his bright blue eyes. His appearance was not the only red flag that Elaine noticed during the party. Um, She tried to be supportive and happy that her cousin, who had always sort of been unlucky in love, was finally happy in a relationship. And so with that in mind, she tried to get to know Vanner slash Rasmussen a little bit better.
0: Elaine asked him what he did for a living, and he replied that he was a retired army colonel. But when she tried to probe further, telling him that her boss was a retired full bird colonel and that they might even know each other because they were about the same age. Uh, but when she said this, his whole demeanour changed. She says his face darkened and he leaned over to her saying, don't ever question me or ask me again about my past. But before Elaine could even respond, he sat up straight, went, you know, brightened up and went back to normal, just chatting and having a good time. You know, almost as if, like, a light switch was flicked on and off really quick. At one point, he also claimed to own properties all over California, but couldn't tell anyone where these properties were. He also said that he had previously worked for the CIA and could disappear if he wanted to. Great! That's normal. I mean, we know he's good at disappearing, but I don't think he worked for the CIA.
1: Yeah, those are, like, two different things. (laughs) Things... Didn't get better when, a few days later, Eunsun called Elaine to ask her what she thought of her new boyfriend. Uh, Elaine tried to voice her concerns about Vanner, explaining his response to her asking him fairly normal questions about himself and his life. Uh, And she urged her cousin to make sure that he was who he said he was. But this only seemed to anger and upset Eunsun, who took it as her family just not being happy for her. Elaine worried that Eunsun's open and free-spirited personality combined with her loneliness and lack of happiness or success in relationships uh, would leave her vulnerable to being taken advantage of. Following this exchange, Eunsun began to drift away from her family and friends. No matter how um, often or vehemently their family tried to voice their concerns, or approach the subject of Unsoon's relationship with Vanner, it would always uh, lead to arguments. And eventually, Unsoon uh, emailed various members of her family saying that since they couldn't be happy for her and her relationship, she didn't want uh, anything else to do with them.
0: Elaine says that the emails didn't sound like Unsoon, but it wasn't until a few years later that they would all realize that this was because they weren't from Unsoon at all. This is a really common tactic employed by abusers to distance their victims from their loved ones, and we see this happen over and over again in Rasmussen's relationships with Denise, Malise, and now with UncerN. They were all isolated from their family following arguments, and all of these arguments reportedly stemmed from issues with the families had with their relationships with Rasmussen. yeah. And we even see the same sort of thing with with Dawn, Lisa, although it's a different kind of abuse. Following the presumed death of her mother, she was isolated from everyone in order for him to keep her as an alleged sex slave. She had no friends, there was no family, there was nobody was looking for her. And the only reason she was saved was because the owners of the RV park took an interest in her and were concerned for her well-being because she appeared to be underweight, she had no toys, she didn't interact with other kids. Yeah. And if they hadn't been so sort of astute and noticed that, she would have, well, she was a victim, but it could have been... A lot worse. It could have ended in murder. Yeah, exactly. In
1: 2001, Eunsun and Rasmussen moved in together, and the two were married in an
0: unofficial Star Trek-themed ceremony yeah when we say unofficial that means it wasn't legally binding okay uh, not that you have to have a license for a star trek themed wedding i was gonna ask
1: that exact question because i didn't know <laughs> if it was like an unlicensed star trek themed wedding <laughs> or if it was a <laughs>
0: non-legal <laughs> union Yeah. no I- Couldn't find, I couldn't find a good way to word that. (laughs) And just imagine like, oh, it's, um, it's,
1: it's Captain Cork and Dr. Spack at, at, at (coughs) your wedding. It's like slightly wrong. And it's the, the Volden salute, not the Vulcan
0: salute. I don't think that's what it was. It was a wedding that wasn't legally binding. (laughs) Makes more sense, but still.
1: (laughs) Um, So most of Unsoon's family were not invited to this unofficial Star Trek wedding. (laughs) It's not funny, but it's hilarious, you know? Um, So although Unsoon was isolated from her family, she still maintained a number of friendships. And one of those friendships was with Renee Rose, and it was Renee who raised the alarm when Unsoon disappeared in the summer of 2002. Renee and Unsoon were both potters, and they would often go to pottery classes together and on trips to exhibitions and shows. So when Renee called Unsoon one day in May 2002 about a trip they had planned to take the following week, she uh, became concerned for her friend. She told local media outlets that Unsoon sounded anxious and upset, um, and that she was speaking quickly, like she needed to get off the phone, telling Renee that she would call her the next day. But she never called and didn't show up for the trip that they were planning to take, and Renee never saw her friend again.
0: Eventually, Renee was able to speak to Rasmussen, still going by the name Vanna, who told her that Unsen's mother was dying and that she had flown to Virginia to be with her family. Renee was still concerned, so she asked Vanna if there was any way to contact Unson in Virginia. But he told her no. Uh, Renee kept trying to get in touch with Unson, refusing to accept Vanna's claims that Unson was fine and just out of the area. He eventually gave the excuse that she was in Oregon, and again, there was no way to contact her. Renee told Vanna that she was going away on a trip for ten days, and that she wanted to hear Unson's voice on her answering machine when she got back that if she didn't, she would be contacting the police to report her concerns. Ten days later, no message from Unsoon, so Renee reported her friend missing to the police.
1: Uh, A couple days after Renee reported Unsoon missing, Contra Costa County detectives brought in Larry Vanner to ask him a few questions about his missing wife. Uh, As you might expect, Vanner was evasive with the officers. Um, He told rambling stories about volunteer firefighters and rambled on about what quote truth means and how it's different to different people of course he was one of those um he eventually told officers that Unsoon was overseeing renovations to one of his properties in oregon but when police pressed further he could offer no details about this property So he changed his story, telling them that Unsoon was in Oregon, but she was really at a rehab facility and even managed to recite a phone number for such a facility off the top of his head. But this presented another problem. Um, Because of patient confidentiality laws, doctors couldn't just hand over their patient list to police without a warrant. So they came up with a compromise. Um, The police would describe Unsoon and staff at the facility would tell them if uh, they were treating anyone matching that description. And it turns out they were not. Banner said he wouldn't tell the police anymore because they weren't his doctor or his priest, of course. Um, He thought he was above the law and that the police had no right to question him about his wife nobody had seen for weeks um and he compared their questions to neighborhood gossip
0: yeah i mean this is definitely like psychopathic tendencies yeah delusions of grandeur oh yeah for sure so while detectives were talking to doctors in oregon their colleagues were running background checks on vanna and as soon as they entered his social security number into their databases, they found it wasn't an actual social security number. It was an index number. So index numbers are kind of like placeholders. They are given to people who, for whatever reason, don't have a social social security number or any other form of ID. So this is instantly a big red flag for detectives. Yeah. There's literally no record of him in any system. So they decided they would fingerprint him and see if he showed up in any state or national databases. Detective Roxanne Grunheide was assigned to the case. I think she's amazing. Yeah, she's cool. I know she's retired, but if I ever get murdered, I want her to be like the detective on my case. Yeah,
1: also like, she has the best voice.
0: <laughs> yeah. She already had a reputation for solving challenging cold cases and for never giving up. Even when a case was solved or winnable in court, she would keep digging until there was all the information. And that's what she was about to do with Larry Vanner.
1: Yeah. Um, Roxanne rode along in the car that was transferring Vanner to a different facility for fingerprinting, and she began fishing for details. Um, She started making polite conversation about where he was from, because Vanner had a strange accent that nobody could really
0: place. Yeah, and she even sort of makes this conversation by, you know, comparing it to her own voice, which which is, her accent is amazing, but you can't place it because it's a bit of a mishmash.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like... Uh, trying to remember now. It's kind of got a bit of a, like, New york sound to it, but she's clearly spent time in in Northern California and like, yeah, it's kind of like all over the place. But when she asked him where he was from, his whole demeanor changed. Uh, He sort of immediately became sort of darker and more sinister and he leaned in and said, that's none of your damn business. And then he immediately returned to normal and went back to making small talk with Roxanne and the other officers. Now, if that abrupt change sounds familiar, it's, that's because we've just heard it. It's, it's just how he behaved with Unson's cousin Elaine after she asked him about his past and time in the army. Uh, But this time he did it with a police officer who, you know, pretty obviously gonna look into his background so making yourself look real suspicious there buddy
0: vanna's fingerprints were taken and they quickly came back as matching those of curtis kimball who had skipped bail 12 years earlier so he was immediately arrested because there was a warrant for you know breaching the terms of his parole when and this is when roxanne really began her investigation into his and unson's lives Because it had been 12 years since Rasmussen had been in trouble with the law, Roxanne believes that he didn't realise the process of comparing fingerprints, which took days and was done by hand in the 1980s, was now computerised and only took hours. And that he was banking on being released and being able to skip town and assume a new identity before the results came back, showing that he was Curtis Kimball. And according to law enforcement, he was visibly shaken when he realized they knew he wasn't who he said he was. <laughs> and of course, alarm bells are now ringing even louder for Roxanne and her team as they were now sure that wherever Unsun was, she wasn't okay. No. Uh, because Vanner or
1: Kimball, as law enforcement now believed him to be called, ha- had violated his parole, Roxanne and her team now ha- had the opportunity to search his home. He had been living with Unsun in um, East Richmond Heights, was a middle class neighborhood with views right across the San Francisco Bay. Roxanne explained on the Bear Brook podcast that they didn't do a thorough search that a CSI team might do. They didn't go through everything with like a fine tooth comb. They were looking for a body. So they didn't bother looking in drawers or under furniture, you know, places that weren't big enough for a body. Um, yeah. The house didn't really give them anything. But when they moved into the outbuildings, it was a whole different story. There was a garage that Unsoon had converted into a pottery studio with numerous kilns and many pieces of pottery in various stages of being completed. But at the back of the garage, there was a doorway which led down to an unfinished bit of the building, a space which was described as a, a crawl space of sorts with a dirt floor.
0: In the corner of this crawl space there was a huge pile of cat litter about three feet high and five feet across with a couple of industrial lights clamped onto a beam above. Roxanne immediately called in a forensics team and when they began to sift through the pile of cat litter they found a human foot still wearing a plastic flip-flop and eventually they exposed Unson's dismembered body because the body had been preserved in the cat litter it had become almost mummified which is actually not that rare given the right circumstances Uh, traces of blood were also found on the walls and ceiling in this crawl space area which suggests that Unson had been bludgeoned to death before being dismembered and covered in the pile of cat litter and if that wasn't insulting enough Vanna slash Kimball slash Rasmussen had used Unsoon's money to buy the cat litter. That's just really
1: rude. So the case seemed to be pretty open and shut. Uh, Kimball had lied about Unsoon's whereabouts. Um, She was found dismembered at the property that she shared with him. And Roxanne had found witnesses who remembered him buying the extraordinarily large amount of cat litter that the body was hidden underneath. Uh, But the prosecutor, Joe Mata, was concerned that Kimball would claim Unsoon had fallen or died in some other accidental way and would try to negotiate a lesser charge. So, Roxanne kept digging, even after the trial began in 2003, and she found that because Kimball had taken a plea deal for the child abandonment charges in the late 1980s, a paternity test had never been carried out to establish whether or not he was Lisa slash Don's real father. So she contacted the San Bernardino Police Department who um, had dealt with the Lisa case and convinced them to reopen the case and carry out the paternity test that had been abandoned in
0: 1989. But Kimball overheard Roxanne and one of the prosecution team discussing this during a recess in court one day. And as soon as proceedings resumed, he stood up and pleaded no contest to Unson's murder. His lawyer actually stood up and went on the record in court saying it was against his advice. Which is saying something. And yeah. You know you fucked up if, it, if your lawyer's going, nope, nothing to do with me. Yeah. Told him not to do it. And Kimball was sentenced to 15 years to life. As we know from last month's, uh, last month's episode, the Lisa case, as it? became known was reopened and that is what led to the development of forensic genealogy Mm -hmm. and to lisa being identified as dawn Bowden, her mother denise Bowden finally being reported as a missing person and to the identification of malice honeychurch and her two children marie and sarah so we're not gonna cover that again kimball was imprisoned at the high desert state prison in northeastern california during his sentence, Roxanne and many other detectives from Contra Costa County and San Bernardino police departments visited him to try and get more information about Lisa, about her mother and many other victims they feared they had not yet discovered to just try and put a timeline of his movements together mm-hmm. so they could find if there was any suspected victims in that area. But Kimball never broke his silence. And other than law enforcement, he never had any visitors, never even made a single phone call. Cheers. Yeah. He always maintained that he had either severe memory loss caused by years of alcohol abuse or just straight up amnesia, never giving anything away. <sighs> um,
1: Kimball died at the High Desert State Prison on December 28th, 2010. His cause of death was a combination of lung cancer, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD. If, uh, you, you ever see those daytime TV infomercials. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I never knew what COPD stood for yeah. until I saw that written down. I was like, oh, oh I see. Um, uh, so lung
1: cancer, COPD, and pneumonia, uh, and now remember that when he died, law enforcement still thought that he was Curtis Kimball and he was 67 years old. So in trying to trace Kimball's life and uncover all of his criminal activity, law enforcement had begun referring to him as the chameleon killer because he was so adept at changing his identity to blend in with his surroundings. Um, uh, so good at conning victims and presenting himself as an ordinary man to everyone else. It would take until 2019, almost nine years after his death, for them to finally discover his true identity. Uh, In 2017, clips from his interviews with Contra Costa County detectives were released in uh, the media in an appeal for anyone who knew Kimball's real identity to come forward, and one of his sons did just
0: that. In 2019, DNA testing using samples from a son and daughter of his eventually confirmed that Kimball was Terence Peder Rasmussen, also known as Robert or Bob Evans, Curtis Mayo Kimball, Gordon Jensen, Larry Vanner, and Gerald Mockerman. Probably a few more a in there that they haven't discovered I'm yet. sure. He spent a lot of time evading yeah. police sadly we still don't know where denise Bowden is nor do we know the identity of the third child in the barebrook case who was confirmed to be rasmussen's biological child we don't know who her mother is and therefore where she is or what's happened to her we i mean we can presume with a you know it's probably safe to assume that she is another victim of his Uh Um, we don't know for sure who elizabeth evans is if she was marley's honeychurch which is what i believe or if she was another victim of rasmussen's we have no idea how much destruction rasmussen left in his wake in the years that are still unaccounted for Four years between leaving New Hampshire with Denise and Dawn and turning up in California and abandoning Dawn at the RV park in the twelve years that he was on the run after skipping uh skipping town after being released on parole. Who were the other siblings Dawn talked about, who allegedly died after eating field mushrooms? And finally did he have anything to do with the disappearances of Denise and No and Lorene and Ran? In Manchester in nineteen eighty, tragically, we will likely never know the answers to these questions now, yeah, I and mean, I really hope we do find the answers, but I don't think we will yeah, I think
1: if we're gonna find out anything, it'll be about the identity of um the last Fairbrook victim
0: yeah i think that's the only one that's really got a good chance of being answered yeah.
1: but all the other stuff is so i mean it's it's unfortunate because he's he's dead and ultimately in all these instances he is the one who had the most important information yeah i mean my thing i think the thing about this guy for me is that missing time because you know he was not abducting but like coercing women to come with him and live with him and like bring their children to him like for years uh, starting yeah. in the 70s, maybe before that. We don't really know. Um, yeah. But so uh, he was doing something between being in New Hampshire and being in California. Like, he was up to something. Yeah. I 100% believe that. In the 12 years oh, yeah. between leaving uh prison – and showing mm-hmm. up in California with Unsoon, especially if you look at that crime, in this case, one of the only ones where it's, like, very cut and dry of, like, we, there's a body, there's a crime scene, and it's definitely this guy. Like, no doubt about it. Yeah. It's, like, quite obvious, and obviously he's been linked to the um, Bearbrook murders as well,
0: but... Yeah. I mean, he was a predator his his entire life. So those... I mean, technically he was on the run for 12 years, but there was only nine years that are unaccounted for. Yeah. Those last three, we know he was in the Bay Area with Unsun. But those... That first nine years, I 100% believe there are more victims. Oh, yeah. And I think by the time he killed Unsoon, he was getting sloppy because he'd got away with it for so long. Yeah, that's
1: the thing. And it's like, I mean... Certainly, if someone is out there smart at physics or uh, criminally sophisticated enough to know how to distance one of their victims from their family and friends and then to murder them and hide their body and the evidence to buy fucking cat litter and, you know, use that so that... There's no smell, like, all that kind of stuff. Like, this guy, he's not new to this. He's done this before. He, like, you know that he has been up to some shit, and he's just left a wake of destruction
0: for his entire life. Yeah. Well, if we go by what we know, we know there's four confirmed victims, the Bearbrook victims. Denise Bowden is almost certainly... Another victim. Mm. There's the mother of the unidentified child in Barbrook. Ah, yeah. That is at least six victims. Yeah, and that's six victims in a very short period of time as well. Yeah, from the late seventies. So let's go from say, um, let's go from say seventy six to to 80. 80, 81, 82 yeah well Thanksgiving 1981 that's the last time Denise was seen alive so let's let's add a few moments onto that so let's say from 76 to 82 that's six victims in six years yeah and what's I think also uh,
1: important to think about with him because I could see people saying oh well maybe that last Bear brook victim who's not been identified the the child maybe it was just the child so he kidnapped his own child or whatever and then the mother is just out there somewhere but that's not his mo like he takes women with children and then base i mean he's like he's kind of like a serial family annihilator yeah i
0: would never thought of it like that
1: like he he creates these little family pods and then just destroys them
0: yeah when when he's bored yeah. wants he something wants else has no more use definitely yeah
1: yeah i'd never thought of that yeah so like so you know we can say oh the 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 mother of the the final bear brook victim is could be one of his victims denise Bowden could be one of his like Highly, highly likely based on all the other yeah. patterns, I think.
0: Yeah. And like I said, there's, there's the the children that supposedly died from eating mushrooms when they were camping. That The timeline doesn't fit for that to be Marlise's children. Yeah. So there's, there's those as well. Then there's the, the few years in the 80s when he's on the run after abandoning Dawn slash Lisa. And they say there's nine years that are completely unaccounted for and he's got so adept at Mm. basically killing people and disappearing. There must be more victims in those nine years and then by the time he kills Unson, I think he's just got lazy. Yeah. Because he's got away with it for so long uh just think i also
1: think that like it just so happened that her family and her friends weren't as as put off by the sort of distance that he bu- put between them as some of the other families like yeah you know it, and i think probably the time period helped Because you've got email, you've got, it's easier to reach people or it's easier to realize that people aren't where they're supposed to be.
0: Yeah, and I think that's another aspect of of the laziness is that he's not gone to the same length to isolate her as he did. Yeah, because she was still seeing friends and stuff. Yeah, she still had. Like right up until she disappeared, she still had plans with friends, whereas um Denise malice, let's say whoever any of his other victims that we don't know yeah. about nobody nobody was expecting them to turn up, yeah, exactly,
1: uh, yeah, so I think that like, I mean, it very easily could have happened that he could have just disappeared again. And just kept going. I think if if circumstances had just been that slight bit different in in Ensign's case, yeah.
0: yeah, If if the prince had taken a, an extra day or something to come back, yeah, say say if all the computers or something went down, and he was able to leave yeah. police custody, he'd have been gone.
1: That's the thing that totally gets me about this guy, too, is it's not – it's like he sticks around until he's caught, and then he splits. It's, like, it's so bold. Yeah. It's not like, oh, I've committed a crime, and now I need to leave. It's, I've committed a crime. Let's see if anyone catches on. If they don't, I'll leave in my own time. If they do – it's okay, because I can just get away with it and and, and squirrel my way out of their
0: grasp. They say he was a predator his whole life, and I think his victims were just chosen for for, for what he could get out of them. It wasn't like he had some sort of grand plan. There was no manifesto. There was no sort of big thought pattern behind it. It was opportunity. Yeah, I agree with that.
1: Yeah, it's definitely, it's a fascinating set of cases. Horrible, but fascinating, especially because of the way it's been, they've all been put together,
0: I think. Yeah, I think think if he was still alive, it would be, the cases would be more well-known and I think there'd be a lot of, he would be like, psychologist wet dream yeah oh absolutely um to be so crass He <laughs> would never be crass <laughs> what are you talking about <laughs> yeah no but you know yes, what i mean yeah. he would he would be receiving the same kind of infamy and like attention and infamy and everything that like say uh joseph mm, d'angelo mm-hmm. absolutely is now receiving yeah for these like really historic crimes yeah. but because he's dead we will never get answers yeah, yeah. so that's fun and that's <laughs> yeah once again we have solved the thing. <laughs> yeah um oh we might we might have solved who elizabeth evans maybe is. hey c- c- cops
1: call us we got an idea for you roxanne Give us a call. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that is, uh, the chameleon killer, Terry Rasmussen, AKA every alias you've ever heard in your life. That was him. Uh, um, thank you everyone for listening. Uh, we would love to know what you think. Either you can tell us either here on Patreon in the little comment section, um, or you can come talk to us on social media, uh and yeah like it's a wild case let's talk about it you guys um yeah and uh yeah we will be back soon with a brand new episode a regular episode of square Mile murder on our main feed and we'll be back here
0: too soon so <laughs> look out for that yeah, caffeine hasn't kicked in today at all has it no uh it's one of those days <laughs> yeah Thank you for listening. Thanks. See you soon. Bye. Bye.